This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Stephen Jenkinson and CIIS Dean of Alumni Richard Boogs explore what it means to live and die well. This event was recorded on February 1st, 2019 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. That's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. So we are so delighted to hear at CIIS. Sorry for the people over there that I can't look at so easily. But I'm looking at him. Yeah, you're good. good. <laughs> He's going to project that way, and I'll project this way. Um, because CIS is uh, one of those places where I really believe, having been here now 29 years, um, that we like to think that we value learning over knowing. And this book is quite an incredible opportunity to enjoy learning and not get bogged down with having to know. So thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful okay. book. And it will be a, a book that I will use as a resource for many years to come. Thank you. Good. So here at the beginning, I thought maybe we could start by talking about endings. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> An oppositionalist. <laughs> that makes two of us so far. <laughs> why do you think, and I know some of what you've written about, why do we struggle and have such a difficult time with endings? Yeah. Well, you know, the first important thing to say is, let's let that be the last generalization we unleash across an unsuspecting public. It is, now I come to you as a foreigner. Um, on, from the northern side of the operation. And I'm always very, very alert when I cross the border that in a fundamental way, almost everything has changed. And the refusal to acknowledge that kind of thing is a, it's just another form of globalization. And uh, it's profoundly disrespectful of the particularities of place and people and time and so on. And it's just a long-winded way of me saying that I'm not persuaded that we all do anything, you know? So, so uh, not to thwart the question, because I, I take the, the spirit of it, but that's the first thing, that's my qualification. So, and the second answer is, I don't know, of course. You know, I haven't done, I haven't been everywhere, and I haven't asked everyone. And if I did, I'm not persuaded that they were all honest. So, so with that, it's a pocket full of caveats, what's left? Well... What's wrong with endings? Well, uh, it's not why anybody came to this country. How's that? It's not part of the national mythology. It's not part of the code endings. Um, The endings are a kind of collapse. The willingness to end is, from everything I've seen and heard over the years, not only not held in high esteem, but it's viewed very dimly. 
I was um, somewhere outside Chicago and um, on the highway, and I saw a sign, and just like you, I've seen it many times before, and the sign never said anything to me until that particular day. And, and here's what it said. Be prepared to stop. <laughs> and I thought, shit, yes. <laughs> of course. Who wrote that sign? <laughs> Let's get him to make some more. <laughs> you know, and um, look, if, if you think about, I, I worked in the death trade a long time. And I can tell you, and I'm sure it comes as no surprise to many of you, that the notion of being ready or prepared to die was held in high esteem until you started to wonder what they thought being ready to die would deliver to them. And I have to report to you with some sadness that routinely the vision was being ready to die meant you weren't really going to die. That's what readiness is actually for in a place that doesn't believe in endings. It's a kind of bizarre insurance policy to guarantee that the inevitabilities are optional where you're concerned. And that's what your readiness is for. But of course, um, you know, having pointed that out, then the road to some kind of allegation of sanity would be what? To end. And to end well. Not to not end and mistake that for a good conclusion, you know. Here's the second sign I saw in Toronto on the way to a gig one time. It said, if you're afraid of drowning, try swimming. I love that. <laughs> I just love the, the, the absolutely stunning proposition that you're not obliged to drown. It's not the same thing as ending, you see. But at the end of the day, because all the days have that, then the tutelage that comes from endings eclipses by many times over the mania for hope and the allegation that if you just work your hardest, they won't get you. They'll get you. Every ending <laughs> will get you. It's what you deserve. It's what happens when you begin. And any grown-up knows that there's such a thing as too late to be saved from endings. So this is a, a, a recipe for maturity. And that seems to me, and we're going to talk in, this, in great detail about this tomorrow, <clears throat> but endings play an enormous role in crafting human beings out of protein units. Protein units. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Vaguely simian protein units. Just to give us our full due when we're born. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the idea that, that you can do anything you want is an absolutely ludicrous and cruel taunt. You know. And it, it's not in the repertoire of grown-ups to imagine that you can do anything you want any more than it is to require being hopeful as a prerequisite for undertaking the immensely challenging labor of being a human being in a troubled time, you know? So, um, so hope is the pill you take to get you over endings. And the whole thing is just a pharmaceutical nightmare.
to me. Next question. <laughs> the next I'm question. finished. <laughs> you are an interviewer's dream. <laughs> the next question is actually a quote from you. Okay. So I can't screw this up. Okay. okay. <laughs> What has to die is your refusal to die. Your refusal for things to come to an end. If that dies, life can be fed. Could you say more about that? <laughs> I did. There's a whole book. <laughs> uh, um, well, let's see. You know, I found that uh, working in the death trade, and I don't mean this to sound confounding, but I'm trying to do um, absolute justice to how confounding it actually is. Uh, because the conclusion of one's life is a... Um, inscrutable mystery uh, enshrouded in, in biochemical necessity. It's, it's not a bad way of considering it. It's, and it doesn't belong to you. It's entrusted to you. You know, your ending. It's entrusted to you in exactly the same way that the world has been entrusted to the generations that find themselves uh, alive at any given time. Not as a proprietary piece of ownership to do with as you want or see fit, or milk for all it's worth. Because people did come to their dying time, in my experience, virtually the same way as they come to a piece of, quote, undeveloped land, <clears throat> which in itself is a prejudicial term. Of course, there's no such thing as undeveloped land. That's like describing people as preliterate or pre-Christian or something of that ilk. You know, nobody answers to that description, of course. So, okay. So uh, answer one question at a time. Okay. Uh, I'm not good at that, but uh, let me see if I can chain myself to the necessity of it. So I found that um, dying, the dying itself took a long time to die, which is to say that dying um, has, from what I saw, a momentum of sorts. And, you know, that's a blessed thing because it's not all... <laughs> the soundtrack of what I'm talking about. It's a blessed thing because the entire onus of the enterprise uh, is not upon the dying person to, quote, pull it off. Because dying is, is bigger than all your ideas about it, just as marriage is. Marriage will eclipse every idea you bring to being married. And you could go further without risk of cynicism at all and imagine that um, the first casualty of getting married is every idea you had about being married. Right? Because all your ideas of marriage are rookies, lunacies, masquerading <laughs> as a belief system. Right? And you say, oh, yeah, but three, I'm married three times. Oh, I wouldn't brag about that. <laughs> It's not as if you're finally getting it right after three times. You know? But anyway, there's a lot of parallel to dying in this regard. In that um, dying is, is so much larger than your preconceived notions about it. And uh, dying is not that, frankly, tolerant of the particular prejudices you bring to it uh, because it's asking for a degree of um, tutelage from you. It's not asking for any capacity. It's just asking for this kind of almost corrosive combination of willingness uh, to learn and a willingness not to be possessed of certainty that's... Um, hopelessly premature, and of utterly no use.
In other words, you can hear the way I'm speaking about it. I've understood for a long time now that dying is a deity. And as such, uh, a de- you know, approaching a deity, I don't know if you've done it lately, uh, but, uh, you know, it requires some considerable circumspection. And that's proper, you know, because it's a different order and it's a different world. And uh, for that, because of that, one of the things I saw was when dying um, began to pick up a head of steam uh, over and beyond the, uh, the, the sort of conglomeration of symptoms and so on, you began to see that it had its own momentum over and above how that person in particular was dying. And it brought them to the gates of death and beyond simply by force of momentum, you could say, as much as anything else. And there's an enormous amount of grace in that because it's not all up to you. And to a certain degree, you obey the rhythm of dying too. Okay? So when it brings you past death, or into, I don't pretend to know what's after that, but anyway, certainly deep into the proceedings. Of course, the people, quote-unquote, left behind, this tends to be in North America a raggedly different story. And the necessities that had their way with the dying person become optional points of view or feeling states in the quote-unquote survivors. So largely what you begin to find is the meaning of your death. You yourself will be a stranger to because the meaning of your death will actually be crafted in the hours and then the weeks and then the years after your departure from the scene. That's when your death begins to acquire its meaning, which is to say that the meaning of your life and your death is not really in your hands to craft. And this is anathema in a culture that's predicated on being self-made and self-fashioned and self-directed. And it's, it, it amounts to a kind of crime against nature and some kind of inherent cruelty to begin to recognize that you're a bit player uh, in the drama which has been your life. From the point of view of authorship, I mean. Obviously, you were there most of the days. You know, but for all of that, you exercise no particular authority. Whereas everyone who will outlive you is more authoritative about the meaning of your life than you would ever know how to be. And the amazing thing is, you won't get to hear any of it. And so there's a grace in laying that down, you know. And the grace is in full disgrace now. In the practice of uh, baby boomers, I begin to hear about this now, who insist on being present at their own wakes. Not stuffed and sat up in a chair and tied there. Not that form. Still alive. See? This is happening. It's no surprise that boomers would insist on being at their own wakes, is it? It's kind of in keeping with the general consumer mania of the generation. To have probably their, to film it too. <laughs> to have the full articulation of their self. Um, self. Self. So. And, and that includes participating in your wake. Well, honey. <laughs> sorry. But honey, look. If you're there, it's not awake. Sorry. You screwed it up. Again, okay, you have to be dead. That's what awake is. If you're there, it's called a party. Okay, no big deal. Not a one-off like your wake should properly be. And of course, at your wake, people will tell a, a lot of stories. Some of them will involve you. 
Not many of them. Some of them will, and some of them will be true. And it's left to the peanut gallery to decide which of the various allegations of larceny that are attributed to you are authentic in some fashion, and which begin the strange lionization that accrues to everyone who slipped this mortal coil and has become, at least for 15 minutes, heroic, (laughs) simply by virtue of dying. Well, you have to laugh to keep from crying sometimes. So that's a long-winded way of saying what? Well, you know, dying is, isn't concentrated in a few moments. Um, people have said to me routinely when I was on the, what I called the man-killer tour in support of the book called Die Wise, um, man-killer referring to me and all the miles I was putting on myself, uh, they would ask me, when do you think a good time to get ready to die would be? And I would, I don't wear a watch, but I would go through the pantomime going, well, let's see, what time is it now where you are? Well, they're standing right across from me. And they say, well, it's whatever it is, 847. I said, because their view was that things have to get, quote, pretty bad in order for you to, to decide that uh, your shekels shouldn't go towards, quote, the rest of your life but might be devoted to going towards the rest of your death instead. And, and it fell to me to craft phrases like that. Quality of life was being used all the time in that business now. And dying people are held to a, an insane standard of performance called achieving and maintaining a quality of life. But they're dying. Why are they obliged to maintain a, a quality of life the integers of which were crafted when they were 14 or 17 years old. What do you mean? Have we got a minute, minute or two for a little more about this? Okay, because I saw some eyebrows. So imagine this. Uh, if you look at all of the quality of life indicators that hospices use and so on, one of the things you're likely to find is underneath the particular expressions and articulations of that idea, there's two fundamental um, foundations given that this is North America. And the first one is autonomy. Autonomy is the fundament of quality of life, along with its strange, bastard sibling, mastery. And they could be mistaken for the same thing, but they're not quite the same thing. But mastery and autonomy. And this underlies every North American vision of what it means to be enjoying a quality of life. So the next question that you have to craft then, or at least one of my faves, goes like this. When was the last time you enjoyed maximum autonomy and mastery? And you see people look at the ceiling like it's written up there. Hmm. Hmm. But nobody wants to answer in case they get it wrong. (laughs) I'm asking you about your life. And you're careful that you don't want to get it wrong. I understand. Because at some level, you can smell it. It's a trick question. Oh, yeah. It's a trick question, all right. And it goes like this. The real answer is when you were about 14 years old. That's the last time you enjoyed maximum, untrammeled autonomy and mastery. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's bullshit. I didn't have that when I was 14 years old. I didn't say you had it. I said you thought you did. (laughs) And that's the way you carried yourself. 
I don't need you, right? I need the keys, mind you. <laughs> I don't need you. And so on and so forth, no? So, in other words, it's an illusion. In other words, the entire quality of life industry and the bizarre code of conduct and moral order that's insinuated from it is crafted in mid-adolescence to serve an illusion that never comes to call. And that's what's applied to dying people in their time of waning physical capacity. Why is it not called quality of death? Because that's what is there to be served. Not your quality of life as if the degree to which you're faithful to your pre-morbid state is the degree to which you remain a human being. But instead, your willingness to take all of that fidelity and give it over to the last months or the last weeks and understand that that is as deserving of the best part of you as any, quote, wonderful time that preceded it was deserving of the best part of you, including your life partners and all of that, because your death is your most faithful life partner. Yeah, and it deserves the best of you. And if you can't manage that, then give it the rest of you. And that's what I advocated when I was there, and I didn't have many takers. Next question. So in some ways, you've talked about the, the fallacy of sudden death. Mm. That doesn't really exist, sudden mm. death. If one is being conscious in a day-to-day, hour-to-hour kind of way of accepting that this is a finite. Would that it were so. I, I didn't make any allegation about chronic consciousness. No. No, I don't think that's true. What do you mean? I mean that um, when I say there's no such thing as sudden death, I should back up a step. Uh, Oftentimes in the death trade days, I was pretty vehemently challenged uh, when people would say the likes of, you know, it's all well and good and rather ornate, the stuff you're talking about, but it requires a high degree of of, of, uh, intellectual acumen, in case you didn't notice. And, uh, you know, at at people's best... Not every, this is not a liberally or at least democratically distributed capacity, in case you hadn't noticed that. And so, and what about people with Alzheimer's? And then it, and it just went on and on and on. And, um, and it fell to me to say, first of all, uh, coming to an understanding of your death doesn't require a higher education. I could go further and suggest those with a higher education tend to be disadvantaged in this regard because they're of their willingness to believe that their thinking will get them through. Okay. But the notion that there's no such thing as sudden death comes from the understanding what death is. Not, not that there's no such thing as, as acutely uh, unanticipated. But the phrase acutely unanticipated doesn't refer to the me- means of dying or the time lapse that it involves. It refers to your willingness to anticipate it. And by that understanding alone, there is no death that happens quicker than your capacity to anticipate it. Which is to say that everyone sitting here tonight fully capable of befriending and and in deep learning about their own demise. 
such that when it comes, there is no out clause called what? None. None. And if it's one of those, that's no less true. That was as knowable as the long and dark road of chemotherapy and so on. As knowable. Of course it is. So really, the phrase sudden death is an acknowledgement of truancy, not a characterization of a way of dying. And in that sense, unfortunately, it's a bit of a... a Condemnation might be too strong, but it's a... It's a serious challenge. Yeah. Fun guy, aren't I? (laughs) Well, speaking of challenges... Maybe we could talk about heartbrokenness for a moment, because one of the things that you, you note is that it's a vital sign of life, this state of heartbrokenness, and again, one that maybe is difficult for some people to... Can, allow me to quibble, and I know you haven't okay. finished. Okay, I'm finished enough. <laughs> no, not necessarily, but um, heartbrokenness, if you're asking me, is not a state Okay, that's in the phrase there. But that leads your thinking, phrases like that. It implies that there's a condition. You have kind of an a priori set of criteria that you meet some kind of DSM. What are they? Five, six, seven? Where are they at now? Whatever it is. Five, five and a half. Five editions. <laughs> they can't get it right. <laughs> if they did that with a quote Bible, what would you be thinking about the Bible by now? You just say, forget it, man. Forget it. Forget it. Show me the comics. Five. But anyway, so uh, heartbrokenness sooner or later, if it's not already in one of them friggin' things, it'll end up there uh, because it's alleged to be a state. But I submit to you that it's not a state at all. That principally heartbrokenness should be understood as a verb, not an adjectival uh, uh, clutch. In other words, heartbrokenness is what you do. It's not how you feel about what you do. It's what you do. Heartbrokenness has a repertoire. Heartbrokenness has, uh, is very faithful to time and place. And in a, in a Geiger counter sense of fidelity, I would say. And, and uh, the, the antidote that it's offered, in case this is... Well, anyway, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you finish the question like a big shot. I mean, <laughs> let me finish this part by saying that uh, in my encounters with the, um, the diabolical unwillingness to be heartbroken amongst competence-addicted people in the death trade, it's a mouthful, comma, and not finish the sentence even, one of the things I found is the recipe that people more or less force down each other's throats is less heart to have less brokenness. In other words, competence. In other words, hope. In other words, here's a little song I wrote. You might like to vomit note for note. That stuff. You know? So I submit to you that the recipe of less heart to achieve less brokenness turns out to be the kind of fool's poker hand that you can readily recognize it to be as you hear me say it now. And less heart is less everything. It's not just less brokenness. And I'm not even persuaded it's less brokenness. It's something approaching numb 
isn't it? And enough heartlessness is trauma, not peace of mind. So my response is that, that the, um, when, uh, when I was speaking with dying people, I would never ask them how they are until 15, 20, 25 minutes into the meeting because it's an extraordinarily consequential thing to ask a dying person. And so you don't ask it idly, at least I never did. Uh, and, but I would slip it in, apparently with no, you know, to no particular purpose. Uh, and the, the session would often have begun with just horrendous la- layers and, 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 and gales of despair and, and you know, all the existential torment you could possibly conceive of. And 25 minutes later, I'd say, so how you doing? And they'd say, pretty good. <laughs> and, I, and I'd just look at them. And then they'd look at me, and then the face would change, and they'd, they'd take umbrage, and they'd say, how did you do that? i said, how did I do what? How did you get me to say that I'm okay given everything? <laughs> and I'd say, you, you allot me far too much influence. You know, I have some consequence, but I don't have that much influence, certainly no control. So that was all you. I simply asked you at a time where you weren't, didn't have the program locked in for the, quote, right answer. But that's the right answer, isn't it? Right now, you're sitting there doing two things at the same time that you thought were absolutely incompatible. And what, here's what they are. You're dying, and you're okay. Holy shit, they would say. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> yes, I know, because it, it holds you to a standard of of prescience and conscience that doing miserably and being depressed and despairing lets you off the hook of, you see? So in actual fact, uh, the more capacity dying people have to be okay and dying at the same time, the more properly you should begin to ask of them. In other words, you are not in my presence, allowed to rescind your citizenship in the land of the living prematurely. We will make our claims upon you to continue your journey with us until the point at which you will be left behind. But your feeling state is not the thing that determines when you're no longer with us. Sorry, what was your question, though? (laughs) I'm, getting, I'm kind of excited. I'm happy to be here, and that's what oh, it sounds good. like. I'm sorry. Good. I don't really mean to take over. No, I but, want you to take uh, over. You, you're, you, you are asking me about my bloodline here. Yes. So I'm telling you the old geezer stories now. Well, I think you know, the second part of the question was how, to, how does one deeply trust and practice heartbrokenness? Ah. Oh, that's brilliant. brilliant. First of all, the question as a formulated prop- proposition is worthy of so much honor and regard. How do you properly practice and trust and trust heartbrokenness? So immediately it recasts heartbrokenness, not as an affliction, but as something to be practiced, or in my language, a skill. The skill of heartbrokenness is something that should be taught in school to kids this big. I'm not sure you'd have to teach them a lot about it because they are, to a certain degree, able practitioners more or less instantaneously, you know. But you do have to, eventually they will learn that there's a distance between how they feel 
and quote whatever that thing is called their heart, sadly, you know? Okay, big story uh, that just opens up when I say that, if you, if you don't mind stories instead of hypotheses. Uh, it goes like this. <clears throat> In the old days, I was lucky enough to be handed a ridiculous amount of money by a ridiculously rich family. And all they said was, do something for kids and don't embarrass us. <laughs> that was the full program. Do something for kids. We don't care what it is. That was true, too. Well, it's, you know, a benign gift like that at arm's length is not a bad thing to have. You don't need the rich guys screwing things up. Just take their money and tell them you'll be, let them know next year how things are going. And that's what I did. And then I... I established a center, which I called the so-and-so center, because you've got to put their name on it, apparently, um, to, to thwart the oncomingness of their own demise, apparently. <laughs> what, what, it should be called the soon-to-be ex-so-and-so, so-and-so center. <laughs> then, then we're clear, right? It's not like you get an out clause because you got the money. It's not what it means. But anyway, the so-and-so center for children's grief and palliative care. That's what I called it. So you can hear I'm putting the emphasis on the syllable that I think deserves it, right? And the, and the emphasis on children's grief and palliative care is a distant second consideration when children are dying. It's children's capacity for and maligned expectations around grief that deserve the lion's share of the professional attention in my not very humble estimation. So... Routinely, and this may cause you to draw in breath sharply, what I'm going to tell you now, but I have no reason to come all this way to you and lie or exaggerate. No investment whatsoever. So I, this absolutely faithful reportage from the front lines. That the families, um, even in spite of their own motivation and inclination, harbored a sense of grievance and injustice about the oncomingness of their children's death that was not located in their children's death. Which is to say the thing they were most aggrieved, but not necessarily heartbroken by, but the grievance that was most acute in them was not the fact that their children were dying, but that they would not live long enough to live a quote-unquote full life. That's where the sense of injustice arose. And that's the vast majority of the parents and the siblings and so on. So I wondered about this as I began to see it. And I was shocked, frankly. Not in a sense of me judging the, the legitimacy of that response, but only that I didn't expect it. That the fact that they were dying was, was left in the dust compared to the ripoff of not enjoying a full life. So I simply began to wonder whether the children themselves experienced the same sense of ripoff and grievance about not getting to live a full life that their parents and all the various hangers-on were certain was the principal injustice in the whole scenario. And up to a certain age, not one child harbored anything like a similar resentment towards life that their parents and their families had. In other words, they were alone in their unwillingness to curse their fortune. And they had no one to love life with during those days. If you can imagine, 
But that is what it did come down to. Because not one person on the parental side was loving life in those times. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anybody's supposed to be celebratory. But I'm simply pointing out to you that there's enormous unintended consequence from deciding that this is not a matter of heartbrokenness. This is a matter of justice. When you go that route and that you imagine that all children have the right to live to 84.6 years, then basically you're condemning all the children who will not do so to a half-life, a kind of shelf-life. So here's the story I wanted to tell you that comes from that. So um, this would come up, or, or I had to put it this way to the families in the family room. And then I would say, um, you're quite sure about that. Your daughter, not, you know, because she's dying of leukemia at seven, is not going to live a full life. And they'd look at you like, like, how could you not be on board with this understanding? As if this is an understanding. Which it isn't. It's an a priori prejudice. It's not an understanding that comes from the reality of dying. It's a prejudice that they brought to it. So, they would say, yeah. And I would say, um, why don't we do this now? I just, maybe for my own edification, let's go down the hall and let's ask her. Ask her what? Let's ask her uh, if she's lived a full life or if she thinks she's going to get to. And they'd look at you like, man, you are a monster. That you would actually put that into words? And ask a seven-year-old and make them say it? Because their assumption is she's going to say yes. But I already knew what she was likely to say. So you know this entire exercise is not for the benefit of the child. You can hear it coming, right? Okay. So they would say, out of the question, completely understood, I said. How about if I did? If you what? How about if I go down and I'll ask your daughter if she's got, got to live a full life. And then I'll come back and just tell you what she said. And, and this way you don't have to go through it. And that's what I get the big bucks for, you know, so. What do you think? And they'd all be, they'd all be shuddering, and some part of them would be going like this. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody would, you know, the more, more liberal person in the, in the family would probably say, okay. And then I would go down. And I would come. And if you're ever in this position, I recommend this, if for no other, no other strategy than this one that to take the chair and rather than set the chair across from them as I am sitting across from you now, change the seating arrangement, not that you're quite sitting beside them, but that you're looking off in the approximate direction that they are, which is to say the things you're wondering about don't include them. You're wondering together about something. They're not the object of your scrutiny. This great mystery is the object of your scrutiny, something that you can undertake together. And your seating arrangement actually signals that. So, and if you, if you don't have any leukemia around the house, uh, do it with teenagers. <laughs> okay. So I come and I sit down. I sit the, seat the chair that way and I say, uh, and it went like this. So I was sitting with your family a little while ago. And they, she'd go, mm-hmm. And I'd say, uh, pretty bad. She'd go, yeah. I'd say, do you know why? She'd say, yeah. And I'm going to paraphrase it because nobody at seven actually said it this way. 
But the paraphrase goes like this. She would say, well, um, I'm not allowed to know that I'm dying. You see? So when they come around, I don't. I say, yeah, pretty much. I got it, yeah. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Here's today's uh, dilemma. And she go, oh, really? What's that? Well, um, they're pretty sure that you're not going to live long enough to have a full life. And she'd, she'd just kind of narrow her eyes. And, and you could see that look again, like, adults are so weird. <laughs> just come across her face, and adults are so weird, which is, it's, you can't make a case against that, really. So um, I'd say, so I'm here to, to, you know, to ask you about that. And she would basically say, I don't understand the proposition. I don't understand the concept. And of course, at that age, exactly. You don't understand the concept. Why? Because you're not old enough? No, because you haven't learned it. Which is to say, you haven't learned that the only valuable part of your life is the one that hasn't happened yet. You haven't learned that yet. And you're entirely possessed by the minutia of the stuff that's already happened. So I would say, look, I got a clipboard that's very official. Okay, I got a pen and everything. So I need a couple of examples of the full life that you have no notion of and your parents are sure you'll never have. I didn't say it like this, of course, but, you know, for your benefit, this is how it rolled out. And, and she looked at me like, oh, shit, okay. And then she's just rolling around in her brain going, full life, anybody? Full life? <laughs> and then she would say, just, I remember this one in particular, she'd say, uh, um, I rode a horse once. Shit. <laughs> Exhibit A. <laughs> And I'd write it down. I rode a horse once. I said, it's great. But you know how parents are. You've got to have three. At least three. One is not persuasive. <laughs> That's why they didn't stop at you. They had a couple of siblings because one's not enough to persuade you. This is nuts. Don't have kids. It's crazy. It's expensive. It's crazy. They'll never thank you. You'll never, get, you'll never make your money back. Return on investment is ludicrous. Don't do it. Anyway, I said, so I need a couple more. <laughs> and she's like, uh, but she's kind of on a roll now. So the next one was, um, I fell off. <laughs> this is the Iliad and the Odyssey in two sentences. <laughs> Rode a horse once, fell off. <laughs> you ask the Dalai Lama about that, okay? He'll say, done. <laughs> done. That's my replacement. <laughs> Anyway, I said, I said to her, three, can I have a third one? Don't tell me you got back on. She said, no, I, I, was, I didn't get back on. I was too scared. <clears throat> okay, what's the third one? Well, there was this um, boy that lived next door, and, uh, and I kind of thought he was cute, you know. And then uh, one day we were playing at the sandbox, whatever it was, and then, and then there was a fly that landed on his ear, and I leaned over to brush the fly off his ear just when he turned to look at me like that. And, uh, well, it was close. <laughs> I'm thinking they'll never survive me reading these three out loud, which is true. And I said, okay, okay, that's, that's plenty. That's a full life. Your cup runneth over, you know. The whole deal is there. And I'd go down the hall, and I'd sit down, and they'd look at me. Did you ask her? Yes, I did. Did she answer you? Yeah, after a little while. I had to explain the terms of reference, but basically, yes. Would you like to know what she said? 
And they said, yes. And by, usually I never got past the second one. And everybody, well, it's a river of sorrow and, and everything, you know, because at some level they think she still doesn't understand. But the misunderstanding is misunderstood. The real fundamental misunderstanding is the notion that the life that will never be constitutes some kind of deprivation, some kind of ripoff, some kind of uh, right not exercised or enjoyed, you know, which a seven-year-old has no capacity for. So this is a long-winded way of me speaking about heartbrokenness uh, to say that the seven-year-old who understands that she's not allowed to know that she's dying as long as her parents are around so she doesn't cause them further heartbreak, it's the seven-year-old that's the heartbroken one there, not the parents. The parents are trying not to be heartbroken, quote, for her sake, which is a ludicrous demonstration of, of a Teflon capacity that nobody should admire, in my view. So the recipe for heartbrokenness is more heart. These things are, are built with fissures, aren't they? I mean, even anatomically, they are. And every heart-shaped thing, most of which are seeds, are dicotyledons, right? They're, they're two, they're halved in some fashion, and there's fissures that run through them. And, and they're designed, of course they are, to break. And minus the breaking, there is no third thing. You know, there is no life because life is, 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 is rooted in the end of life, demonstrably, you know, across all the natural world. And alas, the human world, it's still an allegation. But, but our capacity to be heartbroken has to be learned. And, and, and minus adult-scale demonstrations of heartbrokenness, heartbrokenness is a, becomes an issue of shame or frailty or weakness not a, a particular skillfulness uh, that answers the call of the world faithfully. And I imagine it takes a, quite a bit of growing up. You know, I'm very at odds with the notion of growth, of growth for its own sake, to be frank. I would not characterize adulthood as a limitless playground of growth. I would prefer to imagine uh, true adulthood as the end of growth and the incarn—excuse me incarnation of grownness instead. Not completion, but that we have to start being able to rely on the fact that you've pulled off as much as you've pulled off and you don't get a day off from being the one that the rest of us are looking to. And if you maintain the notion that you grow exponentially and infinitely and this is your moral obligation, then I wonder where you think all this growth is supposed to come from. Because in every other sense of the term, growth is an acquisitive thing that takes from somewhere else. In every incarnation you can think about it, growth happens over here because it's taking from over there. And I'm not sure at all that the personal growth industry, which is proliferate in North America, is not doing exactly the same thing as any clear-cut forest company is doing. I lost all my friends tonight. <laughs> and made a few new ones. Maybe. <laughs> so my last 
question before we open it up to the audience is mm-hmm. um, a little bit about uh, the Orphan Wisdom School and also your idea that human beings are not born, they're made. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Okay, uh, I'll start with the the term, the Orphan Wisdom School. Why did I've been often asked... Well, it's actually the phrase orphan wisdom is a kind of umbrella phrase I chose to characterize uh, all my shenanigans, uh, all of them, you know, even the ones I'm not sure about or I'm not proud of. So why of all phrases, you, it's just, it doesn't sound that, I mean, I like the wisdom part, but couldn't you just said like really wise wisdom school or just wisdom school? Or why do you have to qualify it with, of all things, orphan? Okay, here's why. I'm a fan, frankly, of, of being incarnate. I don't consider it a problem to solve. To have a body, right, and mind, and all the other stuff that connects them. I don't consider any of these things to be a taunt, or a joke, or a gag, or some kind of speed bump on the way to enlightenment. Near as I can tell, and I don't pretend to understand very much, but this is what enlightenment looks like, to walk around going, Christ, I get another shot at it. So the sun rose and so did I. And one of those two things is not a given. And maybe both of them, the way things are going. So, orphan. If I say the word orphan, uh, generally speaking, if I ask people to free associate, one of the first phrases that comes out is no parents, understandably. But there's no such thing as no parents. Now, you might qualify it immediately and say, well, don't know where my parents are. Okay, but that's not a condition of orphanhood. Okay, never knew my parents. Well, there's a lot of people still living with their parents who, who would say that. <laughs> So then, so, so what's orphanhood then? And I would, I would, you know, just simplify it and say, parents, yeah, can't get there from here. That's how I understand the term. Now, when I said I'm a fan of being incarnate, what I mean is I understand myself principally to be a, an inhabit, inhabitant of a, of a cultural and historical reality that I have... Uh, a fundamental responsibility to, regardless of how proud or not I might be of it, a responsibility to that doesn't include uh, uh, unreflective pride. You understand what I'm referring to here? Okay. So, um, one of the, thank you very much, one of the root conditions of being a North American, generally speaking, at least if you understand yourself to be in the dominant culture of North America, is that you're a spawn of a spontaneous mass migration that no matter what your national mythology says was not voluntary. That nobody looked up one day and said, let's see what's going on over there. That all of the migrations were a consequence of an abject misery so profound that it's hard for us to conjure it, frankly. To be driven literally to the edge of the known world for the sake of drawing breath says an awful lot about where you're standing and virtually nothing about where you're heading or why, right? So these people were fleeing. And this is the foundation story of North America. 
And one of the consequences, unintended, certainly in the early going, was uh, the consequence of the Middle Passage or the Atlantic Passage or crossing is that people at some point during that voyage, at some point in the early years of being where they were, understood themselves to have both a moral obligation and an opportunity to be, quote, free, unquote. And that freedom almost across the board articulated itself as freedom from what they had been. And the inadvertent consequence of exercising freedom in that understanding is that when it's your turn to die, your greatest fear will be what will become of you. And why is that? Because by virtue of leaving your ancestral stories behind, including the malignant ones, let's just be clear, including those, the consequence of leaving all these things behind is that you have no shared understanding with your peers about what's to become of you after you die. And for all the misery that you left behind, you did have that. And North America is the place where a, a death phobia so profound and existentially implacable has come to enjoy an almost permanent employment. And I can tell you that, having been at the deathbed of so many people, be they, quote, believers in one religious tradition or not, or agnostic or whatever they claim themselves to be, but one of the root conditions that they shared and wish they didn't is that they're fundamentally at the, at the deeper cultural level, orphans. And that orphanhood came to visit them in their dying time. And it was never diagnosed and it was never discussed and the psychological higher-ups never approached it as a legitimate object of real scrutiny and consideration. Never. And if I didn't do it, it never happened. And Exhibit A, I know this is going on over time, crowd into your question and answer period, so consider this an answer to a question you haven't asked yet. (laughs) (laughs) So imagine this, that people come to their dying time with a, a primordial fear so intense that it drew all the saliva out of them, even though it was nowhere close to them in that moment. Because that's true, they did. And almost across the board, the fear was remarkably the same from one person to the next. And it was writhing in agony at 3 a.m. with no recourse and no solution. In one way or another, that's what it came down to. And you might find that prosaic and unbecoming of people anticipating their last days, but I don't think it was. But here's the mystery, that that greatest fear virtually never came to pass, certainly not on my watch. Why? Because the physicians that were involved in the team were so skilled at pain and symptom management that writhing at 3 a.m. with no recourse, undoctored and unministered, virtually never took place. Now, you know and I know that not writhing at 3 a.m. required some heavy medication indeed. So there is a, um, how should I put it? There is something to be given up in the name of not writhing at 3 a.m., isn't there? Of course there is. Now, here's what I'm here to tell you, though. If that's their worst fear, and it was, and it never came to pass virtually, and it never did, then would this not, just by itself, in the naked way I've said it to you now, constitute a recipe for sane, holistic, whole person dying? 
the worst fear never comes to pass. Hallelujah. How then to explain how many people whose worst fear never came to pass died sedated, slack-jawed, and drooling? How to understand it? My answer to you is because they were wrong about what they feared most. They didn't know what it was. And five minutes ago, I told you what it was. And it seems so benign compared to the terrors of tumors and rupture and, you know, the notion that you don't know what's going to happen to you after you die. The notion that you're not persuaded that there's, quote, really anybody waiting for you. That the notion of ancestral continuity is such an allegation to you and nothing more. That this belongs to people with swarthy skin, but nobody who looks like me or many of you sitting here now. But that's what it was. And that's why they had to be sedated. Because their worst fear was still there and still intact and never spoken about. And that understanding, among others, is the wisdom part of the orphan wisdom enterprise. To understand that the land of plenty has never been what the national mythologies allege that it is. If I may put it to you this way, America still hasn't happened. It's a European fantasy, obviously, completely articulated by European miseries, and it has not taken place. It's still a European fantasy. See? So, North Americans, I know, North Amer- we're freestyling here, man. There's a sign-up saying, you know, we got to do this, we got to do that, but we're humans, and we're roll- on a roll. Well, one of us is on a roll, and... <laughs> The rest of us have no choice. Oh, you know? we're rolling right along with you. Because this ain't no democracy, right? <laughs> For the moment. So anyway, why do I call it orphan wisdom? Because I don't say that by virtue of being orphans, we're bereft of the capacity for wisdom. Very simply and very nakedly put. But the notion that we have to pillage someone else's uh, ancestry, uh, spiritual and religious traditions, uh, ceremonial life and so on... Uh, is, speaks to a secret suspicion that we come from absolutely nowhere worth coming from and no one worth coming from. And this is one of the principal anxieties, it seems to me, in the North American streetscape. And anybody who claims to try to be useful to their fellow citizens on this continent has a deep moral obligation to, 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 to come to this thing and to at least articulate the, the, the perils of it. And so... Happy to help, you know, in this regard. So that's the first part. What was the second part? (laughs) You don't remember? Yeah, we have a school. Why do we have a school? Humans not born, they're made. That's why. eh? Humans not born, they're made. Yeah, humans are are made. Um, I'm just going to say this as an unsubstantiated declaration. It's it's the first one of the night, though. (laughs) And it goes like this. We have this word, human. I'm going to talk about this a lot tomorrow, so I'll say it short. We have a word human, and then we have a word humane. And that should trouble you. Because if you come from the secular humanist tradition, and all of you were schooled in that, I'm I'm fairly sure about it, uh, then these should be synonyms. 
but you, you can feel in your bones that the addition of an E changes the meaning of the word. And these are not synonyms. And if you go with the idea that being a human being is inevitable as a consequence of being a biped and a homo sapien and et cetera and so on, and there's nothing to be done except fine-tuning, which is apparently all that edumacation is, just fine-tuning the incipient genius that you already are, right? And that your, hum your humanness is inalienable, that you can't do anything to compromise it or lose it. And of course, at some level, just to say these things out loud causes some ripples in the house, like you're thinking, okay, Ted Bundy. <laughs> okay, well, don't get extreme. Okay, let's not get extreme then. Okay, why do we have the word humane if we've been raised with the idea that human is an inalienable homo sapien constant that we are the possessors of? Why do we have the word humane? Because the word humane is a clear signal that as humans, we are capable of acting inhumanly. And that's what it means. And if your understanding of humanness does not include inhumanness, you're going to miss an awful lot of the 20th century, for starters, as, as a student of the way it is. See? So, so I made a school that, was that, was, that gave itself the following task. I'm going to see what I can do to lay bare the unauthorized history of America. Not America as a nation state, the United States of, but America as a, as a late medieval, early enlightenment and renaissance idea and ideal. The rest of the story, the story they won't tell the kids. A lot of it is history. And so largely the school is, a, is kind of historically ensnared, you could say. And it's the best thing uh, I've ever done. And I'm immensely proud of it. And uh, I have a number of scholars from the school here tonight. And they're, um, they, they uh, grant me the opportunity to feel useful in the world. I'm very lucky about it all. And are you the only teacher? Yep. Well, there's limits. Yep. I teach them too. You teach what? The limits of what I'm capable of. I teach them too. Not authoritatively, but by inference I teach them. Right then, we better do the Q&A bear pit thing. Thank you so much, Stephen. <laughs> what a pleasure. We're lucky to have had the evening with you. Well, me too. I feel lucky myself. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>